been with us. Let me catch up to speed. In Jonah chapter 1, which I would also consider scene 1, Jonah receives this call from God to go to Nineveh, this great city, and preach against it. Jonah doesn't want to do that. He decides to run from God. He gets on a a boat in a place called Joppa, and he's headed towards another city called Tarshish, which is far away from Nineveh. And then a great storm comes when he's out in the middle of the sea. Jonah winds up overboard and in the belly of a great big fish. There's scene one. Scene two, which is what we looked at last week, chapter two, Jonah is in the belly of the fish. And he's praying to God, and he offers this prayer of thanksgiving. And then scene two ends with Jonah being vomited out onto dry land. And then we're going to pick up today in what I would call scene three or chapter three. And so let's just start at verse one. I read this during the scripture reading. We're going to spend a few minutes looking at verse one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. As I've read through Jonah... If you slow down long enough and you read these verses and you look at the text, not only is it powerful, but we often see a reflection of our own lives in this text. I've said that over and over as we study Jonah. This is kind of like a mirror into our own souls. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. If you remember the first time, Jonah tried to run away. Now the word of God is coming to Jonah a second time. Now notice what the text does not say. The text does not say the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, Jonah, you messed up. You shouldn't have run away. You no longer get to be a prophet. I'm taking away your prophet ID card. That's not what it says. It doesn't say the word of the Lord came to the Israelites and God told the Israelites to unfollow Jonah on Instagram and Facebook and shame him online and let's practice this cancel culture and if somebody does something wrong, just cancel them out. That's not what it says, even though that's kind of how this current culture would respond. Instead, what the text says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time because Jonah, like all of us, receives a second chance. Now, just a show of hands, just see who's with me. How many of you have ever received a second chance? I'm going to raise my hand on that. Uh, how many of you have received a third chance or a fourth chance or chance after chance? I mean, we've all been that way with God and with other people. This past weekend or eight days ago, um, I was, spent the whole day, a Saturday, with my family. There's four of us. Started off great. It was a, a great day, but by about 11 a.m., things started going downhill. I was having a conversation with my wife, and my four-year-old son was very excited to tell us something, and we're trying to work on him to stop interrupting us. And in the middle of a conversation, he's like, Dad, 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 and he kept yelling it out. And finally, I turned to him, and I said, Christian, stop interrupting us. And I just kind of chewed him out for a minute. And then as as I did that, hopefully I'm not the only person that's done this as a parent. You realize, like, "Mm, I've handled this poorly. And then... Five minutes later, when he's still crying, I realized, like, okay, I need to make this right. So I went over to him, and I explained to him how he doesn't need to interrupt adults as they're talking, but I'm not above confessing to him, look, buddy, I handled that wrong, and I'm sorry. And guess what? He gave me a second chance. Thankfully, my son gave me a second chance, so you'd think, all right, I've already messed up. There's parenting mistake number one on this day. Let's get the rest of the day right. Well, a few hours later, we had gone to a park. We went out to Moberly. They had this trail. You can ride your bikes around. We were having a great time. And this lady was walking her dog, and she was spraying something. So I whispered to Jessica. I said, 
That lady's spraying something. Well, Addie drives by, and she wants to know what we're whispering about. She said, what? What'd you say? What'd you say? And I got so annoyed that I said, that lady's spraying something. That lady's spraying something. That lady's spraying something. So I answered her three times because she asked me three times. And as soon as I did that, I realized parenting mistake number two, five, six, seven, probably of that day. She played it cool. She was fine with that. I pulled her over to the side, and I said, Addie, look, uh, the reason I was whispering to mom is because we don't want others to hear. So you don't need to know in that moment. But the way I handled it was wrong, and I'm sorry. So twice in one day, I had to apologize to my little children for handling something poorly. Has anybody ever had to do that before? Or maybe at least you know you've handled something poorly, but you didn't apologize. But as a parent, I'm not above that. Because I realize... I need second chances. I need third chances. I need fourth chances. And thank God for second chances. I would feel like, based on kind of what we talked about last week and the way this year has gone, we probably all need a second chance just on life. We probably need to give somebody a second chance. I'm very thankful for second chances. And what we see in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 1 is that God is a God of second chances. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second chance. Time, but Jonah is not the only person in Scripture to receive a second chance. Abraham is called by God, and then not too soon after that, not too long after that, Abraham flees to Egypt, and then he lies about Sarah being his wife. But Abraham, Abraham gets a second chance. Towards the end, second half of the book of Genesis, we meet this character named Jacob, and Jacob is very deceitful. He deceives his brother, he deceives his dad, he deceives his father-in-law, and yet Jacob gets a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, and then Jacob is redeemed and restored, and then Jacob winds up bringing in the nation of Israel. You get to the book of Exodus, and you have Moses who who kills a guy, probably out of self-defense, But Moses runs away, and then later on in life, God appears to Moses in a burning bush, and Moses gets a second chance. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus is on trial. He's being beaten. He's about to be crucified. And Peter denies knowing Jesus how many times? Three times. I didn't hear anybody say it, but hopefully you know that. Peter denies Jesus three times, and then after the resurrection, Jesus asks him, do you love me, and forgives him, and says, follow me all over again in John chapter 21, and Peter gets a second chance. While Jesus is dying on a cross, one of the things that he cries out to God that he prays for is what? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then in Acts chapter 2, that very first sermon that's preached, that first gospel sermon, that audience that Peter is preaching to are the people that killed Jesus. They get a second chance. God is a God of second chances, and it looks like Jonah here is a part of that crew. He's getting a second chance. In verse 2, Jonah chapter 3, it says, God says to him, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. Does that sound familiar if you've read through Jonah? It's the same call. Go back to chapter 1, Jonah's receiving the same call. God does not compromise. God doesn't say to him, okay, Jonah, I can tell you really did not want to go, so I'll send you somewhere else. Nope. The second time after the belly of the fish, after all that Jonah went through, he's saying, go to Nineveh. Same call, same city. I've mentioned this. I mentioned it especially two weeks ago that Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. They were powerful. They were dominant in the 8th and 7th centuries B.C., and they were violent and barbaric, and they did horrible things to people, especially the people they defeated. 
There's no way that Jonah wanted to actually go there, but God still says in the second call, the second chance, go to Nineveh. So it winds up being the same trip. We're not told where Jonah was vomited out. We just know it's probably somewhere along the Mediterranean coast. And most commentators would agree that it probably took Jonah, by the way that they could travel back then, it probably took Jonah about a month to get to Nineveh. So he had a long time to really contemplate over everything that had just happened. So God gives Jonah a call, a second call, a second chance. And how does Jonah respond? Well, in verse 3 it says, So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Some translations say Jonah obeyed. So this time around, instead of running from God, Jonah decides to run with God. He's making the right choice. What's different about him? Well, everything we've looked at so far, he's been broken, he's been humbled, like his life has been changed, and it seems like his heart has changed, but also there's a chance that his body has changed, his physical appearance. There's Steve right there. Steve and I were talking last week about how we've read before uh, other scholars, commentators who have said that spending three days and three nights in the belly of a fish with all those gastric juices and gastric acids, you like to think about that? It might have done something to his physical appearance. There's a chance that Jonah goes to Nineveh not only with a changed heart, but a changed physical appearance. And then we're told in the second part of verse 3, you know, Nineveh was this exceedingly large city, a three days walk across it. Well, Jonah's going to Nineveh, and in verse 4, we're told Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk. And if you just pause right there in verse 4, you know, I like to kind of engage my imagination as I study through Scripture, and I think about how Jonah has finally arrived in Nineveh. He's been avoiding this place for a long time now. He does not want to go there. He's afraid of it. He said no to it, and he's finally going. He's facing his fears. Sometimes we know if we try to run from something, we can only run so long, but we're eventually going to have to face whatever that is that we're running from. And as Jonah approaches the city, what would that have been like for him to see this huge city and that big wall surrounding the city and walking into the city and smelling the smells and seeing the people and bumping into people. I mean, that would have been a very interesting experience for Jonah, I imagine. Surreal for him. He enters the city and he goes around proclaiming this message. Look at this in the second half of verse 4. Forty days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I'm not sure what tone of voice he said it in. Maybe it was 40 days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. Maybe he yelled it. Maybe he shouted it with passion. But that was his message. Now, for those of you who listen to sermons, you probably, most people, it seems like, we don't like just a lecture and just information or facts unless you're a kind of an academic learner. So I know as a preacher, the way that people connect, the way that people really follow and keep listening and, and can kind of bridge the gap from the first century and before then, the biblical context, to our contemporary context is through personal examples, through stories, through testimonies. That, for us, sometimes helps us make the biblical text become alive for us to connect with where we're going through and what's going on in in real life. So as a preacher, the way that I live my life is kind of interesting. Anything bad, frightening, embarrassing, uh, or horrible that happens to me 
for, for you, it may, you may think this has been a horrible day. For me, I think this has been a horrible day, but at least I could probably use that in a sermon at some point. So everything has a silver lining at some point because that's, you know, as a preacher, as all preachers, we're kind of looking for illustrations or stories to help tell a point. Jonah has a message to preach. And what a story he has to tell. Imagine that. As he walks through Nineveh, the story, the personal example, the testimony that he could share is, you better listen to this guy because I tried to run from him and I wound up in this huge storm and I wound up in the belly of the fish and I survived it. And I'm here today to tell you about it. He has a story to tell. Instead, he doesn't use that story. All Jonah preaches is what we know is a one-sentence sermon. Forty days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. In English, it's an eight-word sermon. How many of you would like that? In Hebrew, it's a five-word sermon. It's a pretty short sermon. Now, you could look at that and you could say, well, what if, what if we're just getting kind of the condensed version of this? What if we're just getting a summary and maybe Jonah said more? Well, that's possible, but it's also possible and more likely that Jonah's heart is not into this. He's received his second chance. He's been redeemed. He's got a chance to finally go into Nineveh. And what it seems like is Jonah is not necessarily exuding passion here. In fact, I mentioned at the end of the sermon last week is that Jonah is now turned towards God. He's being transformed, but he's only about 25% turned towards God. And all he offers is this apathetic little one-sentence sermon, 40 days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. And probably the key word of his sermon is overthrown. And probably what Jonah has in mind is Sodom and Gomorrah. You go back to Genesis 18 and 19, those cities are destroyed. And when Jonah says you'll be overthrown, and what, especially if you keep reading in Jonah chapter 4, that's probably what he's hoping will happen. I'm going to do my duty. I'm going to go through the motions. I'm going to say what God told me to say, and then I'm going to go sit outside. I'm going to watch them burn. That's what Jonah wants to have. These are his enemies, and that's what he's hoping will happen. He's going through the motions here, but that's not how they respond. Look at their response in Jonah chapter 3, verse 5 through 9. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. So the most powerful person in Nineveh, he's repenting. and He, procla- he made a, a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. No human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They're going to fast. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may, not turn, he, he may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. Wow, what a response. Jonah's little lackluster one-sentence sermon, and all of a sudden all the people, the most powerful man, the king, and even the animals are repenting and fasting and putting on sackcloth. You might notice the character contrast. I pointed this out two weeks ago in Jonah chapter 1. Jonah represents God. Jonah is the prophet sent from God. And when he gets on this boat full of pagan sailors, they seem to have a better attitude and have more care in their heart 
than Jonah who's representing God. There's a character contrast. And here there's another character contrast. It's Jonah who represents God who created both land and sea and everything in it, and he just kind of goes through apathetically. But compare his apathetic sermon to their overwhelming repentance and response. I mean, what a response they gave. As all preachers would tell you, we don't want to just fill in a time slot on a Sunday morning. We put a lot of time and effort and energy in these sermons because we hope that there's a response, and, I, and maybe that's a response to the invitation that's offered, but we also we want people to be stirred up within them, be motivated to live a Christ-like life, for, for there to be momentum and movement within our churches. Like That's what we want with a sermon, and Jonah gets a great response. But why do people respond that way? All he preaches is this one-sentence sermon. What made them respond and repent the way that they did? Well, could it be? that God had already been preparing their hearts long before Jonah ever got there. And all it took was Jonah's one-sentence sermon to wake them up and turn them from their evil ways. And what we do see is that their response was sincere. I read in the Scripture reading last week from Matthew chapter 12, and the one thing that I'll point out now from Matthew chapter 12 is Matthew 12 and verse 41 where Jesus mentions the Ninevites, and what he says is the the people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah and see something greater than Jonah is here. What Jesus uses in the first century towards the religious leaders is he's God in the flesh, he is there, and they are not listening. But the people of Nineveh, these evil people, these violent people, they repented at the proclamation, at the preaching of Jonah. So Jesus, in a sense, without looking more into what he's talking about in Matthew 12 and kind of focusing on Jonah 3, what Jesus is telling us is their response was sincere. They really did repent. They turned around. So what we see in Jonah chapter 3 in their response is God's power at work. And I can rely on that as a preacher each week, every week, as I work on the sermon, as I prepare it, as I study, as I pray over it, I read over it, I take notes, and I do all, there's all these different stages to sermon planning and prepping, and then I review it Saturday night, I get up early Sunday morning, I review it again, I'm praying and asking God to give me the gift of preaching, I'm asking God to help me to know the wisdom to leave something out or add something in. But even in all of that, I know that the sermon's not going to be perfect because I'm an imperfect person, even though God has always used imperfect people. But the one thing I can rely on each week as a preacher is that what I'm preaching from is the living and active Word of God, and that God is fully capable of communicating a message and changing hearts through His Word with or without me using me as a voice or not using me as a voice. And, and we kind of see that here in Jonah chapter 3 as is, is Jonah does not put a lot of great attitude or effort into this sermon, but God's power is still at work in this. Timothy Keller once referred to Jonah chapter 3 as an army of one. This great city of Nineveh, and at the time, I mean, they were the world-dominant power, the greatest army, the strongest military 
no other country or nation would ever think about trying to overthrow Assyria, especially the city of Nineveh. Like, there's no way you could put an army around Nineveh because it was so large and overtake their military. But God is able to get through to them using just one person. Instead of using this giant military to surround the city, he sends one person basically silently in through the city gates to preach a one-sentence message. And God uses that to change their hearts. And then we see a little bit more about God in verse 10 where it says, When God saw what, what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. We learn way more about God from the story of Jonah than we do about Jonah or about the Ninevites. The main character in the story is God, and what we read here is that God honors their repentance. God sees the sincerity and the genuineness of their change of heart, and God honors it. Jonah's not the only person in this story to receive a second chance. The Ninevites also receive a second chance. And as I mentioned, we see a reflection of our own life because we, how often do we receive second chances? Not just with other people and people that we love, but with God. I mean, how often in our lives have we had to say, Father, forgive me. Forgive me as I forgive others because we constantly need that forgiveness of sins. And what do we do with the second chances that we receive? How do we respond to that? Back in 2013 in Georgia, there was a teenager, his name was Anthony Stokes. He was 17 years old, and he was dying of heart failure. He needed a heart transplant, and if he didn't receive one, he wasn't going to live. But he had a lot of behavioral issues. He had been in trouble with the law, and basically what they told him was that they cannot put him on the heart transplant list because of his criminal activity. They told, him, they told him he had six to nine months to live, and they sent him home. Well, when other people heard about this, they had so much compassion, and they were moved. They were bothered by this because they said, this 17-year-old, you're basically sending him home with a death sentence. So activists rose up, and people spoke out, and finally the hospital changed their mind, and they put this boy on the heart transplant list, and within a few months, he received a new heart. He received a new lease on life. He received a second chance. And if the story ended there, that would be a really nice story. Here's a guy who was living a poor life and and just really making some bad decisions, receives a new heart, gets a second chance on life. The problem was he didn't know what to do with this second chance. He knew he should appreciate it, and he was thankful for it. But he didn't, I guess he didn't have a lot of help in his life to change his own behavior. And after recovering from the surgery just a, a few months later, that pull towards evil, towards criminal activity was so strong in his life that he wound up breaking into somebody's home, firing shots on a police chase, and he wound up spinning out of control off of the road, and he didn't survive the crash. And when I read that story, the news line said, 17-year-old receives heart transplant, dies in car crash, and I read the story, and I, it just it's made me sad. It's bothered me ever since. I think that happened in 2013 because I look at this guy, and you could, we could point fingers and say, look, he received a new lease on life. He received a second chance, and this is what he does with it. But I see that mirror into my own life, and I think, how often have I received second chance, third chance, fourth chance? And what do I do with it? 
Well, we may feel remorseful at, time, at the time, like in the moment. Man, I really need to change. I know I don't need to live like this. But are we really making the changes that we need to make? Are we really showing God, look, my heart has changed and I am thankful that you keep giving me second chances and I'm going to live differently. I'm going to strive to be like Christ. For Jonah, he gets a second chance and you can tell his attitude is not transformed. The Ninevites, they get their second chance, and it seems like they really have turned their hearts towards God, and they have truly repented. What do we do with the second chances that God gives us? And then we look at how God treats us, how God treats the enemy people, the the Ninevites, the Assyrians, how God has forgiven us of our own sins. And and the one question I'll kind of leave you with is how can we reflect that same nature of our Heavenly Father? That if God is willing to forgive us, we know we need that. Are we willing to forgive others? Do you have somebody in your life right now that you need to give a second chance to? Or maybe a third chance or maybe a fourth chance? And I know that that could spring into a discussion that could lead to a, a lot of different places but my question is, and it kind of brings me back to Matthew chapter 18 when Jesus tells this parable of the unmerciful servant. Jesus tells a parable about a man who had this huge debt and it was just completely wiped away and forgiven. No way that guy could have ever paid back that debt. But that same guy went and found somebody else who owed him a much smaller debt and he started choking him and he said, you're going to pay back everything. So you have a guy that's forgiven this huge debt and he's unwilling to forgive somebody else of a much smaller debt. And the point of that parable is to remind us of how God has forgiven us of all of our sin. Are we willing to extend the nature of our Heavenly Father of grace and love and mercy towards others? And in doing so, we reflect the nature of Christ who on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This morning, maybe you can identify with Jonah, and maybe you're thinking, yeah, I've run from God. God has forgiven me. God has given me second chances, and even with that, I still am keep messing up. My attitude's still not right. Well, maybe you can identify with Jonah. Maybe you can identify with the Ninevites who you're at a place where you really know you are far from God, and it's going to take some fasting and some strong repentance to get your heart right and turn back towards God. If you're in those places, if you can identify with that at all, well, come home. Let us help you. If you need prayers, if you're ready to become a follower of Jesus, we're going to offer an invitation, and the invitation is for you. But I also know that we have a lot of people watching at home. So if anybody at home is thinking, yeah, I'm struggling, I can identify with some of these things, well, reach out to us through email. There's a way to, to be reached. There's a way to respond to this invitation, whether it's here now or later on today or whatever it may be. But right now, specifically, we set aside this time. So if you need to come up front, see me, find one of our elders around the room, you can do that. I want to invite you to stand and Tony back up here to continue to lead us in singing.